Lord, this morning. So good to worship you and acknowledge these wonderful truths about how great you are, how powerful you are, how worthy of praise you are, and how merciful and gracious and loving you are. And to express, Lord, really, even just so clearly in that last song, what it means to worship you, offering our lives every day, which is a gift from you every day, to worship you, to serve you, to seek to obey your will, not our own will. So Lord, this morning as we look at what worship is and what it means, according to your word, to worship you, would you give us understanding? We pray that your spirit would open our eyes to the wonderful truths in your perfect word as we look into it this morning. Seek to understand, seek to obey you. Lord, so good to know you, to be your children. So good to worship you. Help us grow in our understanding of just how worthy of our worship you are and what it looks like to worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Well, as Pastor John is away this morning, it's good to be the B team. It's a joy, actually. It's just a joy to... Um, Look at the word with you this morning and seek to understand it a little bit better and grow as we do study it. And this morning, uh, we'll be looking at worship. Probably not a big surprise, since I'm the worship pastor, that I might look for an opportunity to slip in a message on worship. But I'm excited, uh, and I think you'll understand why as we go along. I've been leading musical worship in churches for many, many years. And sometimes people will ask if I like what I do and why I do it. And I guess the fact that, you know, just the fact that you do something for a long time doesn't necessarily mean you like it. You might tolerate it. People have different reasons for sticking with certain careers for long periods of time. But I, I have to tell you this morning that I absolutely love what I do. I love uh, focusing on worship and leading worship and worshiping my Lord. So why do I? Well, there's, there are long answers, but there's a really short, uh, good short answer that's, that's the most important one, and it's very, very simple, really simple. I love leading worship because I love Jesus, and I love to worship my Savior, to praise Him, to thank Him. It's very simple. I love worship because I love Jesus. I love the privilege and the joy of expressing praise to the, the one who created me, to the one who saved me by carrying my sins to the cross. You know, it says in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we've been healed. I love to praise him the one who took my sins to the cross. But what does it mean to worship God or to worship anything or anyone? What exactly is worship? I mean, we use the word a lot in church, but what, is, what does it mean? What does it mean to worship something or someone? So 
It's going to be a little bit of a long intro. I'm just preparing you. It might seem like I'm already in the sermon, but there's sort of a pre-sermon sermon that just looks at what is worship. The word worship comes from the old Eng- an old English word, which literally was worthship, worthship. And it means to give something worth, to demonstratively attribute value, especially to a deity or a god. And a good paraphrase of that is worship is putting the value you hold for something on display. Worship is putting the value you hold for something on display, attributing worth. Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, spell out this concept as it relates to worshiping God. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So this really kind of describes putting God's value on display, ascribing, offering, giving to God the glory that, that he is due, the honor that he, that he is, is deserving of. Webster's Dictionary has two pretty different definitions for the word worship, and they're interesting. The first one is this, <clears throat> a service or rite, R-I-T-E, showing reverence for a deity. I mean, it's true, but it's a little bit sterile of a definition. A service or rite showing reverence for a deity. The second definition is that worship is intense love or admiration. I like that. It fits much better with the biblical definition of worship, although the the reverence part is important as well. That's a critical aspect of our worship. So maybe something like a response of reverence and intense love is good, combining those elements, a response of reverence and intense love. An expanded definition might be something like this. Worship is a continual, obedient, and wholehearted response to all that God has revealed of himself through his word and by his spirit. A continual, obedient, and wholehearted response to all that God has revealed of himself. So just quickly breaking this down, we see that God-honoring worship must include these components. First, it must be continual. So Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Revelation 4, 8 says, The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So everything we do throughout each day should be marked by continual offerings of praise and worship to our great God. Must be continual. Second, worship must also be obedient. Thinking back to the Webster statement or definition that worship involves intense love or admiration... Picking up on that thought, Jesus tells us in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if we have intense love and admiration for the Lord, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's obedience. Second John 6 says, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And then finally, Paul exclaims in Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. We maintain close fellowship with Jesus when we walk in obedience to him. So worship must be continual, obedient, and then third, wholehearted, wholehearted. Shortly before he died, Israel's King David gave his son Solomon this uh, charge in 1 Chronicles 28.9. So David said this to Solomon, 1 Chronicles 28.9. Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Wow, what a great statement. Serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts and he understands every plan and thought. The familiar verse uh, is Mark 12, 30 where Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's definitely wholehearted and whole person worship. So God-honoring worship must be continual, obedient, and wholehearted. Looking initially at what worship is and, and, and just some of these characteristics of the kind of worship that would honor God, we, we, we're recognizing something, and that is that worship is not an emotion that you seek. Not, not first and foremost. It's not, it, it's not uh, seeking an emotional high. It's not a feeling you might get from singing catchy praise songs. Though responding to God's glory and his goodness and his grace with genuine emotion is definitely appropriate. It's definitely appropriate. But that's not the first characteristic of genuine worship, seeking that emotional high. At the heart of true worship, actually, is submission. The heart of true worship is submission. Romans 12.1 says, is Paul saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So that's submission of your whole self to God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's far more than singing and expressing gratitude to God, which again is is important. But true worship, I'm going to give you one more little list, and then we'll get into the actual sermon. True worship is a combination of approaching God, approaching Him in reverent fear. 2 Kings 17.36 says, But you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourself to him, and to him you shall sacrifice. So it's approaching him, with, again, with reverence, like we talked about in the definition. It's also bowing, approaching in reverent fear, bowing before him with adoration. Psalm twenty-two twenty-seven describes this. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. So it's approaching him in reverence, bowing in adoration, and serving him again with obedience. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore, 
Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So this really does picture, paint a picture of worship as submission to God, as Lord of our lives. And I just have a, a little aside I'm going to throw in because it, it just keeps coming into my mind. I've been reading through, in my, just my personal Bible reading, I've been reading through the Gospel of Luke. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've discovered that you can, you can read the Bible a thousand times. You could read it 10,000 times. And every time you read through even a familiar passage, something, you discover something new. It, it's living. I mean, God says in his word, it's living and active, and it really is. It's wonderful. So I'm reading through the Gospel of Luke, and I'm not texting. This is my phone on my Bible. But I'm reading through Luke 19, and it's, it's the parable of the ten minas where uh, the uh, nobleman goes into a far country to receive a kingdom that, that has been given to him, and he calls 10 of his servants, he gives them each 10 minas, a unit of money, and says to them, engage in business until I come. And then this next verse just jumped out at me when I read this the other day. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. We do not want this man to reign over us. And when Jesus finishes the parable in verse 27, when, when this nobleman is, is uh, dispensing justice and judgment on those who were rebellious, he says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, this is a parable, but it has meaning. And it describes people who are being offered a gift and offered a relationship with this nobleman, which I believe represents Christ and our opportunity. It's been extended now to the Gentiles, would have been Israel, but then extended to Gentiles' opportunity to know him through repentance and faith as our Savior and Lord. And just think about that phrase, the people that did not want him to reign over them. I, the reason I share that is what we see in Scripture is a clear picture that worship is submission. It's submission to our Lord. And, and when you're a Christian, you understand what a beautiful thing that is, what a joyful thing, what a peace-giving Relationship it is when you submit to your creator and your savior as Lord. So I thought that just gave a little contrast to this concept that worship at its core involves submission to God. So rather than, uh, this morning it's probably already clear, this isn't an expository message, it's really a biblical survey of what the word, what God's word teaches us about the true meaning and nature of worship. So we're gonna spend just a, a little bit of time looking at what it means to worship God by the book, according to his word. One commentator points out that like its author, the Bible is perfectly righteous. In every respect, the word of God answers to the perfect standard which God is to himself in all his works and words. The Bible's faithfulness and truthfulness corresponds to the faithfulness and truthfulness of God's nature. 
in sharp contrast to everything in the world that is false. This is a great quote by uh, theologian George Zemeck. He says, The Word of God functions characteristically as a mirror reflecting the image of its ultimate divine source. The Word of God acts as a mirror reflecting the character and the nature of God to us. Uh, Psalm 119 is a beautiful, beautiful long psalm that talks much about God's word, his law. We learn about genuine worship. We grow in our ability to demonstrate it from God's word. So just here are a few verses from Psalm 119 about studying and obeying God's word, his law. It's a beautiful picture of worship motivated by his living and life-giving word. Starting with, uh, I'm just going to read five verses, starting with verse 12 of Psalm 119. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. What a beautiful picture of of worship motivated by God's truth, by his word. Paul says that in Romans 11, 36, he says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Everything comes from God. His word puts into, into perspective that all that we are and all that we have come from the gracious hand of God. Everything. Worship is giving a continual, obedient, wholehearted response to his greatness, to his grace, and to his mercy. So here we go. It's a short sermon, recognizing that worship is actually our life's work. It really is. It's our life's work. Let's look at three ways that God's word informs our worship. So this will be the first point. First, the word instructs us to worship God. We've already really seen that, but we're going to look at it a little bit more. The Word instructs us to worship God. Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7, depicts this call to worship beautifully. It says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. So there are, there are four ways I'm going to give in which we are instructed by God's word to worship the Lord. Four ways we're instructed to worship him. Number one, we're instructed to worship through willing obedience. Again, I'm, I know I'm doing some repeating. We're instructed to worship the Lord through willing obedience. God gave the prophet Jeremiah a message to deliver to his people who were stealing, murdering, committing adultery, and making offerings to idols. God gave Jeremiah a message, and this is the message. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
That's kind of strange, right? It says the same thing three times. It says, don't, don't trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Well, these men, like so many people today, thought they could live as they pleased all week long, gratify their sinful desires. As long as they went through the motions of making prescribed sacrifices at the temple, right? I think we see lots of examples of this in different religions today. Repetitive, religious, uh, ritualistic. I say, I say it seven times, then it's really going to happen. Say it three times, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Okay, I, I did it. Check. I did what I was supposed to do. I, I think I'm good with God. That is not worship. It's not, absolutely not worship. It's hypocrisy, which God despises. In Hosea 6.6, God says to his people, he desires steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God is not after those external rituals. He's after our hearts. He's after submission from us. He desires steadfast love, not sacrifice, knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. True worship involves willing obedience that comes from a desire to please God. Second, we're instructed to worship God through sacrifice. Again, we've looked at Romans 12.1 a minute ago. It tells us that offering our bodies to the Lord, all of ourselves, is our spiritual act of worship. That is our spiritual act of worship. As Christians, our lives are not our own. They're no longer our own. 1 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20 reminds us of this. We're not our own. We were bought at a price. That price was the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for our sins. We are now called to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus. That's absolute submission, once again. Third, we're instructed to worship God in brokenness. Similar to Hosea 6.6, in Psalm 51, we have the words of a repentant King David. He states that God doesn't delight in sacrifices or burnt offerings. But David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So what, what does it actually mean to be broken like that? One commentator says this. This is good. Psalm 51, 17 points out the one thing God desires more than any other, brokenness over sin. When we agree with God about how bad our sin is, we take the first step toward reconciliation with him. As long as we try to justify, excuse, or rationalize the evil of our own hearts, we never find our way back into God's presence. Repentance is the doorway to freedom. That's a great statement. Repentance is the doorway to freedom. Jerry Bridges, who's author of a, a really good book called um, Respectable Sins, and it's not promoting certain kinds of sin as, as respectable, talks about how we excuse sins that we kind of rationalize or justify as little respectable sins, not big sins. So he's the author of this book, and he says, 
whether large or small in our eyes, all our sin is heinous in the sight of God. He forgives our sin because of the shed blood of Christ, but he does not tolerate sin. Every sin that we commit was laid upon Christ as he bore the curse of God in our place. Every sin we commit was laid on Christ as he bore the curse of God in our place. True worship involves brokenness, revealing genuine repentance over sin. And then fourth, we're instructed to worship by God's word in spirit and truth. And this is a a familiar verse to us. Jesus says to the woman at the well in John 4.24 that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So just real briefly, to worship in spirit means that what we offer God must be of a spiritual nature, must spring from the heart through the influence of the Holy Spirit, bringing all our affections and desires to the throne of God. Wholehearted, once again, springs from the heart, motivated by the Holy Spirit, bringing all our affections and desires to God's throne. To worship in truth means that we worship according to the whole counsel of God's word, which again is a mirror of who he is. Every purpose and passion of our hearts and every act of worship must be guided and regulated by the word of God. We come to God in truth, not in pretense, not in an outward show of spirituality, but in truth. His truth directs our worship. Spirit and truth. Seeing that God's word instructs us to worship him through willing obedience, through sacrifice, through brokenness, and in spirit and truth. Now we're going to look at point number two, how the word enables us to worship God. It instructs us to worship God, and God's word enables us to worship him. First and foremost, the word enables us to worship God because we are born again through his word. We're born again through his word. James 1.18 says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God brought us forth to be born again by the word, his word of truth. We're only able to worship God in spirit and truth in a pleasing way because he chose us and he saved us by the word of truth. In the book of Romans, Paul explains this. He says that without God's supernatural work opening our hearts to the gospel, we're completely incapable of knowing him. And therefore, we're completely incapable of worshiping him. Paul says in verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And then Paul goes on a few verses later to say, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Again, we're saved. We're saved and born again through God's word. Second, the word enables us to worship because his word lives in us. Saved through his word, and his word lives in us. John says this clearly when addressing young men in 1 John 2, 14. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. 
That's a great statement. The word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. And he goes on to instruct Christians not to love the things in the world which are all passing away, satisfying our, our fleshly desires, but to do the will of the Father. That is worship. That is worship, submission, doing God's will. In Colossians 3.16, Paul makes a direct connection between God's word living in us and worship. He connects the two. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and then that results in singing psalms and hymns, songs of praise for who he is and what he's done for you. When, God, when God's word abides or dwells in us, we have the ability we have the ability and we have the desire to worship him. Because we, we're, when we're in his word, we're meditating on his greatness, which always motivates praise. If we really truly are meditating on the greatness of God. I mean, it says in Psalm 145, verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness, no one can fathom. Meditating on God's greatness, his power, his glory, his holiness certainly motivates praise. And as we meditate on his grace and his mercy, we're reminded to gratefully worship our Savior, gratefully worship Jesus. I'm gonna read you just one verse and chorus of a beautiful, beautiful hymn written in the 1800s by Robert Lowry. I think it beautifully captures this truth, this truth that um, when God's word is, is in us, when it dwells in us, that it gives us the ability and it gives us the desire, it motivates us to worship him. Listen to these hymn lyrics. The hymn is just called, How Can I Keep From Singing? The peace of Christ makes fresh my heart, a fountain ever springing. All things are mine since I am his. How can I keep from singing? No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that rock I'm clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? Isn't that powerful and beautiful? When we are meditating on his word with genuine desire to understand, to know him, to obey him, it's gonna result in worship. It's going to result in praise. So third, the word enables us to worship God because his word inspires us to worship through his promises. His word inspires us to worship through his promises. I already quoted Hebrews 12, 28. I'll, I'll read it again. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Because scripture tells us that believers are in Christ, saved by grace through faith in him, we're, we're secure. We're free to offer genuine, acceptable worship to God. We can do that. We are motivated to do that because we've received this kingdom that cannot be shaken. Another passage that makes this point wonderfully is Romans 8, 38 and 39, which really should inspire our hearts to overflow in worship and praise. This absolutely 
just say there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with us if this doesn't inspire worship. Romans 8, 38, 39 says, for, this is Paul, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Not death or life or angels or rulers, things present to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're inspired to worship God as his word reminds us that God, and this is 2 Corinthians 1.22, we're inspired as we realize God put his seal on us and he has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Martin Luther, famous reformer, of course, said, the very highest worship of God is faith, which considers him trustworthy of keeping his promises. Highest worship of God is faith, which considers him trustworthy of keeping his promises. Thus, God is glorified by the soul that consents to do his will and be treated according to his good pleasure, believing, trusting, he will do and dispose and provide all things well. That's what a beautiful picture of trusting in God, that 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 is part of this worship. His word inspires us to worship him through his promises to those who are in Christ. And then finally, this is point three, the next official point. The word prepares us to worship God. The word prepares us to worship him. Christians, and we all know this, continue to struggle with sin. We will contend with our flesh until Christ returns and gives us glorified bodies, which is something we are supposed to put our hope in. Philippians 3.21 says that our citizenship is in heaven and that from there, from heaven, we await a Savior, Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. This is ultimately, eternally, that's where our hope is, is in Christ's return. But until he returns and transforms us, we will continue to contend with sin, right? We have the spirit living in us, but we're gonna continue. That's why we need the armor of God. We're gonna fight against the forces of darkness, which ultimately we know Christ has victory, has won victory over. But we're gonna contend with sin. But God's word tells us exactly what to do when we sin. His word prepares us to worship him. And there are just two ways that I'm going to give. God's word prepares us to worship him and to deal with our sin through purification. Prepares us to worship, meaning live a life that's pleasing and submit to him honor him through purification. Most of us are very familiar with uh, 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful uh, promise and reminder of, of the forgiveness that's available to all who are in Christ. Unconfessed sin in our lives hinders our prayers and our relationship with God, and it definitely affects our ability to worship him 
in a sincere and in a pleasing way. Because God is perfectly holy, no sin can exist in his presence. Zero. No sin can exist in God's presence. But as Christians were clothed in Christ's righteousness, which Paul, again, he talks about in Philippians 3, that we don't have a righteousness that we have earned by obeying the law. It's not possible. We have a righteousness from God that's by faith. We're clothed in Christ's righteousness so that we can actually stand before a perfectly holy God. But unconfessed sin, it keeps us from worshiping in spirit and truth. If we try to express genuine devotion and obedience to God while there's unconfessed sin, we will be hypocrites. It's hypocrisy until the sin is confessed and dealt with. In Psalm 51, David describes the need and the right way to confess sin to God so that we can, we can have a clean heart again and we can be able to worship him genuinely and sincerely and in a pleasing way. David says, starting verse 3, he says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak you, sorry, you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Wow, what a beautiful description of how confessing sin to God, acknowledging our sin, seeking his forgiveness, leads directly to praise. Well, the second point about God's word preparing us to worship is that he prepares us to worship through sanctification. He prepares us to worship him through sanctification. Uh, as Jeremiah 17:9 says, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. In Psalm 139, David asks God to search him and know his heart because we are often driven by sinful motives without even being aware of it. We need to regularly ask God to search our hearts and reveal any sinful thoughts or intentions. These are things we're often not even aware of ourselves. That's why David said, no, search me and know me. Reveal what's in there to me, God. He knows all. As we study his word, he uses it in our lives to do that, exactly that. Hebrews 4.12 says that God's word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. His word reveals these things, these motives that are sometimes sinful that we're not even aware of. So when we study scripture, we allow God through his spirit, by his spirit, to penetrate the depths of our hearts, revealing any sinful thoughts or motives. And this is how he sanctifies us. This is how we are changed, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3, from glory to glory into the image of our perfect Savior. 
This pleases God and it brings great blessing to our lives because when we submit to the sanctifying work of his spirit, we are worshiping him. This is, this is part of our worship, recognizing, as, this, as it says in Ephesians 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we, we worship him. His word prepares us to worship through sanctification. So just a quick recap. Worship is it's a continual, obedient, wholehearted response to all that God has revealed of himself through his word, by his spirit. And worshiping by his word, by the book, means that we study his word daily so that it will instruct us, so that it will enable us, and so that it will prepare us to worship him in a pleasing way in spirit and truth. After stating that if he dies for preaching Christ, that it will be better to be in the Lord's presence than his earthly body, Paul, Apostle Paul, says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. This is our goal. This is our aim, to be well-pleasing to God, whether present, whether we live or die, Our goal is to please Christ. So in wrapping up, I'm going to leave you with one quick list here. And if I go too fast, just ask me and I can give you a copy of it later if you want it. But the question is, is there a way to kind of assess how we're doing in worshiping the Lord? How can we self-assess in this area of worship? Kind of gauge gauge whether our worship is, is on track with God's word. It is acceptable to him. Living each day fully surrendered to Christ is a lifelong pursuit, isn't it? It's not a one and done. We don't just surrender and then it's easy going from from there on. We struggle every day we have to lay our lives down. Every day we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. It's a lifelong pursuit. But the answer to the question is yes. There are some things we can do to evaluate ourselves in light of God's word, kind of to give us some checkpoints to see how we're doing. And I'm going to give you this quickly so we can wrap up and Pastor Jim is going to lead us in a time of uh, celebrating the Lord's table in just a minute. But I'll give you this list quickly. These are some things we can can check ourselves with. Number one, do, do we come to God honestly, contritely, and submissively? And this is just based on Psalm 51 again. Create in me a clean heart. Do we come to him honestly, contritely, submissively, saying, Lord, show me any sin I need to deal with? Number two, do we come to God in faith? There was the Martin Luther quote, Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Whoever comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We can't please God without coming in faith. Number three, are we seeking God's righteousness above all else? We ask ourselves, am I seeking God's righteousness above all else? Romans 14, 17, and 18 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So the three was, are we seeking God's righteousness above all else? Number four, are we pursuing obedience to God's will in all things? 1 Samuel 15, 22 says that obedience is better than sacrifice. This is, again, the idea. God is looking for hearts 
that love and worship him, not external rituals or acts of obedience on the outside. He's looking for hearts that are right. Are we pursuing obedience to his will in all things? Number five, are we grateful for God's grace and his gift of eternal life? Are you grateful? Am I grateful for his grace and his gift of eternal life? And that's kind of going back to Hebrews 12, 28, which I read a couple times. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I mean, there's so many verses that remind us of the incredible gift of grace. By grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, not as a result of works so no one can boast. It's a, it's a gift that God has saved us. Number six, have you developed a lifestyle of prayer? First Timothy 2, 1, 1 through 3 talks about that we are called to pray for all people. We're called to pray for all people. Paul says in another place, he pray without ceasing. We are called to pray both for our will to be conformed to God's will and for attitudes to be pleasing, for us to walk in the fruit of the Spirit and for other people, for all people we're to be praying. So have you developed a lifestyle of prayer? And then seventh, the final kind of checkpoint is this. Are you living at peace with others as far as it concerns you? As far as you are able, as far as it concerns you, are you living at peace with others? Romans 12, 18 reminds us of forgiving. Do you forgive others? Do you, do you believe the best about them? Do you seek them out when you know that they have something against you? So as far as it concerns you, you try to make that right. Well, these are just some checkpoints that can help us. But ultimately, we're called to worship our gracious God, His Word. It instructs us, it enables us, it prepares us to worship Him in a pleasing way which is going to be continual. It will be obedient, involving the submission of our lives, and it will be wholehearted. As we're instructed, as we're reminded, as we're empowered to worship Him by His Word and by His Spirit. So let's pray and ask God to help us to do this. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is living and active. It is powerful. It is life-changing. And it is truth. It is truth. God, we thank you that when we come to your word and we're teachable, we desire to learn, we are changed. Your spirit uses it to change us. We thank you for these reminders of so many reasons we have to worship you and that worship is so much more than singing praise songs, although that's certainly a wonderful expression of our worship and our praise. But it's, it's a lifestyle. It's, a, it's our life's work. It's, it's living lives that are surrendered to Jesus Christ. Lord, give us, motivate us, convict us as needed. Give us a desire to live lives that are fully surrendered to you because of who you are and you're, because you are deserving of our worship and because of your grace that has been given to us as a free gift by which we have been saved in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow this desire and this obedience of worship in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.